you know, the week after Easter, I, I think every year, right after Christmas, right after Easter, um, there's so much gospel truth in those holidays. Um, what's best to preach on? What is best to follow up these holidays with? And you know, around Easter, we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I simply want us to talk about the gospel. Because it may be that somebody is here this morning or in the late service who went to a church for the first time last week. And you're still wondering in your minds exactly what is the gospel? What does it mean? The best summary of that is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Probably the best summary in one location. Now folks, we're going to look at conversion this morning and the gospel uh, from a biblical standpoint of view. I know we have ideas what it is. What's the Bible say about conversion? How does it take place? What's involved in it? And so we're going to talk this morning about the Christian gospel. If you will find Ephesians chapter 2, I am convinced that this is a text that needs preaching probably no less than one time a year, every single year. And the more I have poured over this text this week and prayed about it and studied this text, I'm convinced that this is a text that in the church we need to talk about more and more. The Christian gospel. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Now I'm going to do something before I get into Ephesians 1. You don't need to turn there, but I want you to listen just a moment to John. John's gospel, John chapter 1. And I want to read for you verse 12 and 13. Listen to what John says there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to verse 13 carefully. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, this morning, help us. To understand the gospel and to clearly communicate it to a lost and dying age. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to listen to pastor and scholar John R.W. Stott. Listen closely to what he says. It's a lengthy quote. I wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. Of course, every age is bound to have a blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. And every generation breeds new prophets of doom. Nevertheless, the media enable us to grasp the worldwide extent of contemporary evil. And it is this which makes the modern scene look so dark. It is partly the escalating economic problem, population growth, the spoilation of natural resources, inflation, unemployment, hunger, partly the spread of social conflict, racism, tribalism, the class struggle, disintegrating family life, and partly the absence of accepted moral guidelines leading to violence, dishonesty, and sexual promiscuity. Man seems incapable of managing his own affairs or of creating a just, free, humane, and tranquil society for man himself is askew. Against the somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2 stands out in striking relevance. Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man. And then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to point a vivid contrast between what man is by nature And what man can become by grace. Now folks, it's important to see chapter 2 in the framework of chapter 1. At the close of chapter 1, we see where Paul prayed that they would come to understand the power of God. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of God that is is at work in us today. 
And this passage is continuing that same thought. God's power is seen in accomplishing our salvation. God's power is seen in taking us from a position of spiritual death to one of spiritual life. And I want you to see this in particular. It is God's power that turns men and women into the children of God. And folks, that's the good news of the gospel. Man in his natural state, the state into which he was born, is spiritually dead and without hope. And the Bible promises that if he dies in that condition, he will forever spend an eternity apart from Christ. The word gospel, of course, means good news. The message of good news. And the good news is that through Jesus Christ, God has intervened in the human predicament to give us forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. First of all, this morning, I want you to see with me our condition. Let's read it again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have here a series of phrases that constitute bad news. Apart from Christ, we are nothing more than the walking dead. These verses convey this bad news about the human condition. Folks, we know that news abounds today. We not only have news in print, but we have news on TV, on the radio, on the internet. And you read most of the news and it is bad. I want you to think just about all the news in the 24-hour news cycle this past week. It's one bad thing after another. These verses are very sobering and unflattering, an unflattering view of humanity. But we need to let these verses sink in though because when we understand our condition apart from Christ, it only makes the gospel shine brighter and more glorious. In verse 4, we're going to get to the good news. And the good news is going to end up being the best news of all when we understand how bad the bad news is. Now another thing about the bad news though, we need to understand a lot of people say today man's problem is only his environment or lack of education or lack of opportunities, or whatever it may be. And certainly while all of those things have their proper influence, they are not the heart of the problem. They are only symptoms of the real problem. The real problem is the heart of man and his spiritual condition. Well, what is the bad news? Look at these phrases Paul gives us. Verse 1. 
We were dead, verse 1 says. Every person born into this world has a DOA attached to them, dead on arrival. They are alive physically, but dead spiritually. Folks, we need to understand that that is the verdict that the Word of God gives us about ourselves. And it's one thing true of every single one of us right now. You either were dead or you are dead. In other words, verse 1 either describes your past or your present. If you don't know Jesus Christ in a personal way, you are a dead man walking. Dr. James Merritt says every home... Without Jesus is a funeral home. Every person in that home without Jesus is a corpse. And every bed in that home is a casket. Man comes into this world not simply spiritually sick, not simply in the ICU, but he's dead. Again, quoting John Stott, he says, This biblical statement about the deadness of non-Christian people raises problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatsoever, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ, appear to be very much alive. One has the glorious body of an athlete. Another, the lively mind of a scholar. A third, the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed, we must say this, and we do say this. For in the arena which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they're dead. They have no life. And you can tell it. They're blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirits towards Him, no crying out, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive as a corpse. And folks, it's not just the people out there. I've told you before, I'm convinced the very reason so many professing Christians show no true interest in the things of God is because that perhaps while they've joined a church, maybe even been baptized, they've never been regenerated. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses, this word refers to deliberate acts of disobedience to God. Dead in sins refers to missing the mark. It also means falling short of God's standard of perfection. Jesus said at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now folks, we can't reach that standard. We all fall short. Dead in trespasses and sins. Paul may be saying the same thing, a literary device. Hendiadus, connecting two similar words, different nuances, similar words connected together by a conjunction that say the same thing but in order to give emphasis. We are dead in trespasses and sins. A second statement about our condition, we were enslaved. Verse 2. 
Paul mentions in verse 2 a trilogy of things that hold us captive. And folks, I want you to let each of these things sink in because Paul is talking about what people are in bondage to and what it is that determines how they think and live. And so each one of these things has tremendous application to your life. As we cover each one of them, I want you to think about how your own life was at least some point directed and determined by these things. First, there's the course of this world. The course of this world. The value system of this world is alien to God. It permeates society and it holds people captive. People tend not to have a mind of their own, but they tend to surrender to the the spirit or the pop culture of the day. It's like a cultural bondage. And Romans 12 too says that a Christian is not to be squeezed into the world's mold. That's what Paul is talking about here. The course of this world you know there's only two ways you can walk in your life you can walk according to the word or you can walk according to the world the word sees man as a creation in the image of God the world sees God as a creation in the image of man The Word says homosexuality is an abomination. The world says it's simply an alternative. The Word says about abortion, taking of a life. The world says abortion is simply though the making of a choice. The world says let's just be happy. The Word says let's be holy. It's too totally Opposite ways of looking at life. The second part of the enslavement here is to the devil. And I want you to notice the point here. Lost men are held in sway by something outside of themselves. So in addition to an inward spiritual nature that is dead, there is a power at work in them that is separate from them. They are under the influence of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. Third in this trilogy, Paul goes on to add here that there is a spirit of the age that is working in the sons of disobedience. The word spirit here is not to be equated with Satan himself, but rather something caused by Satan. I was going to go into detail the Greek grammar showing that it's not one and the same. He's not saying Satan, i.e. the spirit of the world. But just suffice it to say he's, he's simply talking about the, the spirit of the world as being a mood that the evil one creates. And so what the verse is saying, the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. And then he adds the spirit that is work, at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, what he's talking about there is the climate, the mood that Satan creates. And so what we have here is a triple shot shotgun going off. The first shot is the course of this world. The second shot is the evil one. And the third shot is the mood, the spirit that Satan creates. 
Folks, these are the three things that, we are, that, that man is subject to every day on planet earth. And for those who don't know the Lord, these are the things that are directing and governing their lives. They think they're independent. They think they, they are autonomous. But they're not. They're the sons of disobedience. And the Bible says this is how we once all lived. We were held in bondage. We were governed by the course of this world by Satan. And we were held captive by the spirit of the age. We were men and women of the world. And we thought like men and women of the world. And that's why we're not to be surprised at how the world responds to Christ and Christianity. And then a third statement Paul makes here is that we were all guilty. All of us. Don't say how can they live that way. Because the truth of the matter is at least at one time to some degree we all live this way. Now obviously men do not sin equally. Some are more Gifted in their sin than others. More prolific in their sin than others. I've explained even recently at funerals here. It's kind of like if you were to line every single one of us up at the rim of the Grand Canyon. Ten miles across to the other side. In places 18 miles across. If we were to line up and say jump. Every one of us line up and we're going to jump across the Grand Canyon. Some of you might want to get a 10 yard running start. Some a 20 yard running start. Some a 50 yard running start. Some a 100 yard running start. Some more than that. And, And we would all run up and jump and this is what I know I know that some of us would jump further than others I know that but you know what else I know all of us would fall short to our death right Likewise, some do good things when compared to other men, but apart from Christ, we are nonetheless in this state of death. No matter how good our deeds might be apart from Christ, we are walking around in this state of death. To use another analogy, compare it to a rotting corpse. On the one hand, you have a corpse that is more advanced in the decomposition uh, process. Another analogy. Here on this side of the altar, we have a person in a, in a casket. And, and, and let's say we don't embalm, okay? So uh, the dead body decays. Here in this casket, you have a person who passed away last Wednesday. And over here on this side of the altar, you have a person who passed away just yesterday. Which one's more dead? They're both equally dead. Now this person you would assume is rotting more because they've been dead longer. But the fact of the matter is they're not more dead than this person. They are both equally dead. Some may be better than others, but we are all equally in the state of sin. And so we are all equally separated from God 
That means there is no room for boasting here. We lived in the lust of the flesh. We lived to please the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Whether it had to do with money, materialism, the things of the world. Whether it had to do with lust and sex and pleasure or our choices for entertainment. We were all guilty. Some of you are sitting there smug. Hmm, not me preacher. Yes, you. You and me. The whole human race is guilty. The book of Romans says that God has shut up the whole human race under guilt so that he might have mercy on all. Well, it gets worse. I said three things. There's actually four. He says we were all condemned. Verse 3. He says by nature we were children of wrath. Folks, basically this passage is a summary of Romans chapters 1 and 2. What Paul does in two chapters in the book of Romans, he does in 10 verses here. In Romans 1, Paul talks about the pagan, the unbeliever, the non-religious, and everything they do because they suppress the truth of God. And then in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul talks about the goody-two-shoes, the religious man who's trying to be good, who's trying to justify himself by keeping all of the law of God. And in Romans 3, Paul says, it doesn't matter if you're the pagan or the goody-two-shoe, guess what? We're all guilty. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we're under the wrath of God. Two different words generally used for wrath. Thumos, a sudden outbreaking of the wrath of God. We see that in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel sinned by lusting after meat instead of the manna God had given them. So God gave them meat. God gave them quail. But the Bible says as they were chewing the meat and it was, it was in their teeth, the wrath of God, the thumos of God broke out against them and countless numbers of them died. But the word here is orge. When the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, the orge of God, it means the long, the patient anger of God against men. Year after year, God is patient with humanity. And still, humanity goes their own way and sins against God. And so, little by little, God's anger, God's wrath, God's orge is moved. It's like he finally said to Israel in the wilderness, they shall not enter into my rest. The Bible says here, by nature we were children of wrath. Folks, all you got to do to be an object of God's wrath is simply to be a member of the human race. That's all. Our nature makes us Children of wrath. Again, I'm talking about pre-conversion. 
Some theologians call it original sin. Others call it inherited sin. Same thing. King David pointed out he was born in this condition. He said, in sin my mother conceived me. I heard recently here, I forget who it was, somebody was giving an analogy that I gave even uh, fairly recently in in a sermon not too long ago about a scorpion and a duck. And I heard one of you uh, saying that not long ago, talking about the nature, how the uh, the scorpion needed to cross the pond. And he said, and the duck said here, uh, uh, rather the scorpion said, let me get on your back. And And the duck said, no, we'll get out to the middle of the pond and you'll sting me. We'll die. The scorpion said, I'm not going to do that because if I sting you and you die, I can't swim. I'll die too. The duck said, you know what, Mr. Scorpion, you got a good point. Here, hop on my back. The duck began swimming the scorpion across the pond. They got to the middle of the pond. The scorpion stung him. The duck turned around just before he died and said, What have you done, Mr. Scorpion? Now we are both going to die. Do you not realize you're going to die too? Why have you done what you've done? And the scorpion said, Mr. Duck, you don't understand. You see, it's just my nature. I'm a scorpion. It's what I do. By nat- the Bible says, by nature and by choice... We sin. We sin even while realizing that some of the sin we do is going to come back and bite us. It's going to hurt us or our families. Haven't you done that some point in your life? You knew something you were doing was wrong and it was going to hurt somebody around you. But you know what? You did it anyway. You did it anyway. You see, the the Bible points out in Romans 5, I wish we had time to go through Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Some speak of the federal headship of Adam. He represented all of us. Some speak of the seminal headship of Adam. In other words, we were in his loins. There's truth to both of those explanations. The point is, though, we were there. We were in Adam. There's a sense that when he sinned, we sinned because at that time Adam was humanity now there are two things that show that that's fair first of all had Adam not sinned guess what you would have come along and I would have come along and we would have sinned secondly and this is the good part God applies the headship issue not only to Adam, but in Romans 5, he also applies it to Christ. In other words, through Christ's victory, we get the victory if we're in Christ. So through Adam's sin, the curse falls to all of humanity, but through Christ, we get the victory. People want to complain about the first half of that equation. Nobody complains about the second half of that equation. But both of them go together. The point I'm making, like it or not, you and I both were born into this world with a sin nature. You cannot change that fact and neither can I. It was our natural condition. You were not born with a clean slate. As soon as you could sin, you sinned. 
Because again, that was your nature. We were dead, we were enslaved, we were all guilty, and in that state we were condemned. Now folks, like it or not, that is what the Bible says about the human condition. It doesn't mean that men in general can't do some good, kind, benevolent acts. And it doesn't mean that man, that every single man is as bad as he potentially could be. But it does mean in our natural state we were in a helpless, hopeless condition. And every single one of us were in that boat. No boasting. Aren't you glad at the end of verse 3 that God doesn't say, okay, close the book and go home, that's it. Boy, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Secondly, I want you to see God's grace. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I want you to think about that word but for a moment. But God. Isn't that the sweetest word you've ever heard? Somebody writes you a letter of encouragement and you're reading that letter of encouragement and all of a sudden they say but. Why do they do that? Why can't they just write you a letter of encouragement and be done with it? But in this context, boy, that you're glad for that conjunction, aren't you? It's like going to the doctor and the doctor says, Got bad news for you, you've got cancer. But we have no doubt that we've caught it early and we can cure it. What a difference one word can make. I want you to see first of all what God did. Look again verses 5 and 6. And I want you to capture these three phrases. Just like you, I wanted you to capture the phrases earlier about our condition. Capture these three phrases. What did God do? First of all, He made us alive together with Christ. Secondly, He raised us up with Him. And thirdly, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And so in just a few short sentences, we have gone from the depths of hell to the streets of gold in heaven. God has completely changed our present and our future How did this happen? We'll get to that in a minute Just wait First of all let's see why God did it Paul says here because he is rich in mercy God is rich in so many ways The Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills That's a way of saying God owns it all He's rich The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof But he's also rich in mercy Not only is he rich in mercy 
But he has a great love for you and me. Because of his great love, Paul says here. You know what that makes me think of? Makes me think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Somebody one time asked the great theologian, we wouldn't agree with this guy on everything, but the great theologian Karl Barth, what's the greatest thought that's ever gone through that brilliant mind of yours? And at the podium, Karl Barth stood and thought a minute, and he said, this is it. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible told me so. So what's God do? He comes to spiritually dead men and women who are doomed by their own actions and choices and even by their very nature. And through the power of His Spirit, He convicts, He woos, He calls. He says, come to me and I'll give you life. He regenerates, He makes alive. Paul says here, even when we were dead, He made us alive. Verse 7 points out throughout all of eternity, God's grace, His mercy, and His love are going to be on constant display. And we will be exhibit A of His grace and mercy and love. How did God do it? He talks in verse, the latter part of verse 5 and verse 8 and 9 about this stunningly. What do we see here? Stunningly. We did not earn it. We did not earn it. We did not do this. Salvation is not wages earned. And here's where people miss it. In fact, a nationwide survey a few years back, 55% of all Americans said that a good person can earn their way to heaven. 55%. 58% of Episcopalians said they believe this. 59% of Methodists. 76% of Mormons. 82% of Catholics. And even 38% of Baptists said that. You can earn your way to heaven. People miss one of the greatest truths in all the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works lest any man should boast. Folks, there is a lot in the world that people don't understand. There is a lot. But what a shame if they don't understand these verses right here. It is by grace. Grace. Through faith, it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Again, I wish we had time to go into some of the grammar lessons. All of it, Paul is writing, all of it is the gift of God. Everything, the offer, the gift, the faith, everything from beginning to end, it is all of God. It is not a result of works, lest any man should boast. But you know tragically what many evangelicals believe in the world today? And I might be talking to somebody here who believes this. God did his part and I did my part. It's me and God. 50-50. Can I say to you according to this this passage right here, it's not even 99-1 ratio. It's all God. It's all 
the gift of God. Everything Paul is describing here in the Greek grammar that he's setting up, it all comes from God. It all originates in Him. I heard one of our Southern Baptist leaders say not many years ago, and this guy knows better. He knows better because he's, also, he's not only been a pastor, he's been an academic in Southern Baptist. One of the 12 most influential men in Southern Baptist life. He gave the analogy in a sermon of the gospel helicopter. Folks, it was borderline heresy. He said, here I am drowning in the ocean. And I hear thunk, 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 thunk in the distance, the gospel helicopter. And here I am. I'm jumping up and down in the water best I can, waving my arms. Here I am, here I am. Come over here, come over here. Save me. And, find, and somehow or another they spot me and they come to me and they save me. Semi-Pelagianism. Read about it. It's a heresy. That you and God somehow or another do it together. Folks, we don't. The Bible gives us a better analogy. John 11, Lazarus, he's been in his tomb dead for four days. Jesus comes along. He's not hanging his head out the window of the tomb, waving a white handkerchief, saying, Jesus, come my way. He is dead. And Jesus calls forth a dead man. Why do you think that story's in the Bible? Telling us we were dead. And God called us forth. Folks, I know God's sovereignty and man's salvation bothers some people. Some people want to think so desperately that they at least had a little bit to do with it. I want to have some kind of control in it. But we don't. Wish we could walk through John's gospel. Another example, Acts 13, 48. As many as had had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's not that they believed and so became appointed. They believed because they had been appointed to eternal life. Greek scholar and Southern Baptist A.T. Robertson comments that there's absolutely no way you can translate this that they believed and so they were appointed. Again, just the opposite. As many... As many, it sounded like Jesus saying, as many as the Father has given to me will come to me. What's John 17 say? Names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. God's sovereignty. Again, I understand people objecting to this. It takes the human control out of it. But that's precisely the grace of God. It takes the human control out of it and it puts God in the driver's seat squarely where he belongs. And Romans 9 points out that it's not that God looked down through the corridors of history and based on what men were going to do, that's who he chose. No, he talks about Jacob and Esau. Before either boy was even born and had anything to do with it, God said, Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. It's all God's gift. It does not diminish the fact that you have to repent and believe. 
But folks, if we got to heaven and it was by works and you and I were partly responsible, we could point to ourselves. But the Bible says the only boasting that will be done is in the cross of Christ. John 1.12, I read a moment ago. Did you notice? It's not a matter of human decision. It's not a matter of blood or of human decision. It is of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit, the new birth, regeneration is kind of like the wind blowing. There's a mystery to it. Nobody knows. It's why two people can sit in a service side by side. One is gripped by the message and convicted of their sin and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And the person sitting beside them is hardened and walks out in unbelief. There is a mystery to it. What now? Verse 10. We're his workmanship. If you're saved by grace, God's regenerated your soul, guess what? You're the poema of God. The workmanship of God. The poem of God. Now you can do good works. Now you can live the way humanity was meant originally to live. You can't work your way there. You can't do enough good works to save yourself. But now that you're saved... You you are his workmanship created to do good work. Good works as a fruit of salvation. Not the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. Grace. God comes to dead men and women, dead in trespasses and sins, And he calls us, he regenerates us, he gives us life and sits us in the heavenlies with Christ for all the ages to come to the praise of his glory. Amen? Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Has God regenerated you? Given you new life. How do you know? Spiritually is their life. Do you love God and the things of God? There's a lot. You remember in your life, I do, when there was a deadness to God and a deadness to spiritual things. And I remember the day that God changed all that and saved me. And awakened me. Have you had that experience? Folks, I'm not talking about simply walking a church aisle and joining a church. I'm talking about spiritually being regenerated. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless that has happened, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. If it's happened in your life, It's all because of his amazing grace. You didn't do it. And so you ought to live with gratitude. Realizing that now 
you can bear good fruit, fruit of good works. You're his poema. Lord, I pray that those here who've never been born again would be honest enough to admit it. Admit it. And those who have, that we would live with the proper, appropriate gratitude. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.